What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a, a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So there's been a huge showdown over Harvard. We've seen higher education having a big leftist civil war as different factions trying to decide who's going to be in charge. Is it going to be the establishment left? Is it going to be the insurgent DEI left? And now we have seen the firing of Claudine Gay over at uh, over at Harvard, or I should say the resignation of her uh, after a great amount of pressure. Now, Chris Rufo is one of the guys who brought a heavy amount of that pressure, and a lot of leftists are up in arms over that. Uh, he claimed to have scalped uh, Claudine Gray after at Gay after she had been removed from the, her presidency over at Harvard, and we saw a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth about that. But there are other factions that have been intimately involved in making sure that the uh, kind of pro-Palestinian uh, segment of the university uh, leadership gets pushed out. And so we're going to be asking the question, is this a win? How did this go about? How are the leftists reacting to all of this? And join me to do that today is, of course, everyone's favorite frog, the Prudentialist. Thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for having me on, Orrin. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. I'm glad that today I can uh, I can champion a little bit of victory and you can bring the black pills. That's a nice <laughs> mix up for me. Usually I'm I, I told pill. people I was bringing cold water today. Yeah. So so usually I'm the black pill dispenser. Prudentialist is going to stand in for me today. I get I get to be the, the happy warrior today. Uh, but we'll get into all that in just a second, guys. Before we do, let's hear from today's sponsor. Hey, guys, let me tell you about today's sponsor, Magic Spoon. Like most of you, I have fond memories of waking up at the crack of dawn, excited to watch all the Saturday morning cartoons. Mom didn't want to wake up that early on Saturday, so that meant that we got to pour a bowl of our favorite cereal for breakfast. They taste great, but of course, they're full of sugar, so they're not that healthy, and that's why it was a treat. But now Magic Spoon has an alternative to that cereal that you love that has zero sugar but still tastes great. Magic Spoon has reinvented your favorite childhood cereals to taste great, but each serving contains zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five net grams of carbs per serving. It's a keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free way to relive those moments watching your favorite cartoons. Plus, it's 140 calories a serving, so you can start that New Year's resolution with something that tastes great. Peanut butter is my favorite, but they have all kinds of fun flavors like blueberry muffin, maple waffle, and birthday cake. So head to magicspoon.com slash Oren to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try the magic for yourself. And don't forget to add their delicious treats for on-the-go snacking. Be sure to use the promo code Oren at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product that it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of cereal at magicspoon.com slash Oren and use the code Oren to save $5 off. All right, so we've got a lot of ground to cover here. I guess the main thing that, that kind of originally had a lot of people's attention was the way that the left reacted to this. But we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning because I think there's a lot of different facets to this battle, a lot of different factions behind the scene that lead us up to the reaction and the removal of gay. So I guess we can go ahead and start with the events of October 7th. So we have 
the attack by uh, Hamas in Israel, you see the kind of showdown on the left immediately. There's there's a factions break apart. Uh, we have kind of the pro-Palestinian left, the more insurgent DEI uh, left who has been looking at this oppressor oppressed narrative for a very long time. They see Israel as a uh, kind of a colonial power. And so they fit it into that framework. Now, this is clashed with what has been the establishment understanding, I think, of the Democratic Party of the left when it comes to their relationship with Israel. And this starts to break out in college campuses. This conflict quickly goes from just being some kind of regional terrorist attack or uh, you know, a reaction by a state to, to, to an attack inside its borders. And instead, this becomes kind of almost a global protest movement. Uh, they just had to pull protesters off. I think of like Biden's event uh, here recently, pro-Palestinian protesters. So this is still going on. This energy still exists inside the left. And it makes sense. It's the logical extension, again, of the oppressor-oppressed narrative that has been set up inside the left. But a lot of these colleges panic, and you have a lot of big donors, uh, who many of which are Jewish or have a connection to Israel, feel a loyalty to Israel, and they step in and they say, okay, we have to get rid of this. We have to stop this. One of them is a huge hedge fund manager uh, with a lot of influence who says, I want the names of people who are writing you know, these kind of protest letters, these kind of disagreement papers to places like Harvard. I want their names so I can make sure that none of the companies I invest in or work with ever hire these kind of people. So we saw a very uh, serious reaction from a lot of high-profile people inside what would be elite leftist circles when it came to this split between kind of the pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian response. Yeah, that's definitely the, the place to start here. And uh, we were discussing before we went live on the air that you really can't discuss this opportunity of attack that came from Rufo or after Claudine Gay without what happened on October 7th. And of course, the congressional you know hearing that was held that uh, Elise Stefaniak from New York had sort of laid into with sort of what felt like very easy rhetorical games to play. Like, well, do you, you know, are you going to just condone what appears to be blatantly, you know, genocidal rhetoric on college campuses? And they were twisting themselves into knots linguistically and rhetorically over it. And it does illustrate the uh, contradictions inside sort of the progressive coalition is, is that uh, historically, you know, there has been for decades in the United States and college campuses, this um, you know, sort of privilege plus power type of critical race theory, or even just critical theory in general, that, you know, there isn't real racism, there isn't real power, or, um, unless you're the one in charge, absolutely doing it to disenfranchised or disempowered groups. And since October 7th, you know, whether you're um, pro-Palestinian or your positions on Israel or American foreign policy towards Israel, uh, you know, you've seen protesters go out in a way saying that, you know, you can be on, quote, the right side of history, saying, you know, Palestine and other, uh, you know, say, um, races or, or people of color out in the world. Or you can be on, quote, unquote, the white side of history, where they've had flags like the United States, Great Britain, France, and then Israel is also listed on those protesters, sort of placards and, and uh, posters. And so they have this narrative wherein they see Israel and they see the, the Jewish people as white. And of course, you know, they're doing so has created, of course, this huge 
uh, form of you know dissonance and a lot of conflict inside the the leftist coalition. And that's what's really garnered this response is, is that because a lot of um, progressives that have been raised in the university system, these college students who are uh, woke activists, future NGO managers, future congressmen and lawyers, uh, these people view it that way. And because they view it that way, we've seen this huge rift that has emerged. And uh, Claudine Gay's performance in Congress and having the board stand by them had let this opportunity of attack emerge because, um, you know, someone like Chris Burnett, who works over at Carlstack, had been talking about the plagiarism issue for quite some time now. But now with the, you know, uh, protests and the pressure going on from Bill Ackman and other uh, disaffected donors to endowments and so on, has led to where we are today, which, of course, uh, Claudine Gay was uh, stepped down as the president of Harvard. She wrote a very lengthy op-ed, although whether or not she wrote it is totally up for... <laughs> uh, I, it was too good for her to write it, I personally think. I think someone wrote it for her. So better than plagiarism. But, you know, she had made it very clear that this is not just an attack on me. It's an attack on people of color. It's an attack on all elite institutions. It's an attack on diversity. So this attack on all sort of leftist idols over, you know, progressivism, diversity and inclusion, the exchange of ideas, basically that, you know, a Haitian immigrant like me should be able to contribute to the storied history of Harvard. And, you know, she's been forced to step down. And the thing is, however, she still works at Harvard. She still works in the African Studies Department. She still works for their Humanities and Political Science Department. She makes $900,000 a year. Um, that money wasn't seized. The endowments haven't been taxed. They haven't been removed. I know you like to tweet about tanks on Harvard Yard, but um, so far what we've seen has been a very symbolic sort of victory to wherein, yes, Gay is no longer the president of Harvard. She still works there. She still makes nearly a million dollars a year. And we have now triggered a sort of progressive immune response, you know, using very, you know, decades, if not centuries old, um, you know, fault lines in the progressive coalition. And this is where I think we're at right now. And the big takeaway, I think, is, is the left reaction to it. Um, you know, this is what I would call the equivalent of a pinprick. Someone, you know, shocked themselves maybe after walking on the carpet for too long and touched someone else. And they're treating it as if they've been, you know, viscerally disemboweled or had a limb amputated when it's really not that big of a deal. And uh, this illustrates sort of the difference in power between the right and the left. This is an asymmetrical conflict. But, you know, to, to the left, it doesn't matter. Even if you just, you know, got a prick drop of blood uh, to them, it, you know, this means sound the alarm bells. The, the Ivy League institutions are under attack and we have to institute a, a state of exception. And now we're going to be on the war footing. But that war footing is in a complicated position because of the, you know, interminority disputes between, say, DEI progressivism, as you call it, versus the mainstream sort of establishment, toe the line um, states of exception that we see for, say, uh, you know, primarily left leaning Jewish individuals versus, say, the uh, idea that they're part of this settler colonialism, white identity that a lot of woke progressives put them under. Yeah, I think there is certainly a surprise for many that there is consequences to the type of immigration policy that had been enacted in the United States and the wider Western world, that there were consequences to the rhetorical stances that had been taken in many of these institutions. And we have to remember that one of the key functions of wokeness is as an inter-elite form of combat. It's, it's a way to 
cancel people inside the elite. You instead of having a duel, you know, in maybe a more civilized age, instead you try to outwoke your opponent. And many people felt very comfortable, I think, in kind of their position of power uh, because they felt like there was always kind of this trump card. There was always, like you said, the state of exception that was going to exist in perpetuity. But seeing as certain forms, certain lines of logic had taken power, this oppression or oppressive narrative had taken power, there was an eventual conclusion that would be drawn, especially as the percentage of people being imported into the country and being advanced inside places like uh, elite institutions were from places like you know, Palestine or, or other Islamic countries that would not think favorably of Israel and would not have the same opinion that the Democratic Party may have originally held on it. And so they certainly put themselves into a very serious situation. And so when you look at what happened, obviously the original conflict is really about this Israeli-Palestine split inside the leftist coalition and inside their holy of holies, places like Harvard, these elite institutions. The ability of Rufo and others to use plagiarism as a wedge only really arises because of this dynamic. Now, he used it very effectively, right? The, the constant pressure. And that's, I wrote about this when I wrote about taking castles and the importance of having uh, power pieces like Twitter. You know, Rufo would not have been able to execute the maneuver he did without something like Twitter. And so I think it's critical that we acknowledge the centrality of having a platform like that, having the ability to apply pressure like that. But also this fault line only existed because of really inter-leftist warfare. And that also allowed him to apply pressure because he also got help from places like Bill Ackman, who is, again, uh, someone who's very, you know, pretty progressive. He's, you know, he's somebody who has advanced those causes on a regular basis. He is angry because of the way that this you know, uh, Palestinian uh, support started showing itself in these elite institutions. And then he decided to increase that pressure uh, as his own wife was targeted after Rufo brought the, uh, the plagiarism accusations against Claudine Gay. It was then discovered that Ackman's wife had also uh, some level of plagiarism in her academic work. Uh, he decided that it was time to kind of hit the hit kind of the nuclear option. He started threatening to go after MIT and find uh, all the plagiarism there. Now, the motivations behind this may not be right wing in general, right? Like it's it's very clearly a leftist civil war here, and the right is so not powerful that the most it can do is kind of throw stones on one side or the other, right? However, I do think it's interesting because this war could discredit these major institutions in general. And even if the motivation to do that is not one of, you know, the, the best intentions, the simple fact that this is an option, I think, is important. I think you're right to say this may not be the win that many people have treated it as, but I do think it does matter that these institutions are basically committed to destroying themselves, that the different factions inside are now pointing they're pointing the guns inward uh here in, in, at kind of core institutions that hold their power together and that really threatens some of the key pillars of the regime 
Well, I guess it will have to come down to only time will tell in this instance. I, I mean, I, if Bill Ackman had put out a Twitter post uh, earlier, which was basically just a very glorified lengthy essay on uh, January 3rd, got 35 million views. Uh, it was a, a particularly interesting read, basically discussing how um, you know DEI uh, not only just affects Jews, but it also affects whites. Um, and, you know, it's to say that, you know, if we were to basically he had said the law, I'll just quote it. He says, you can say things about white people today in universities and business or otherwise that if you switch the word white to black, the consequences would be costly and severe. And, uh, you know, these are things that you might have heard being said on on maybe conservative or right wing Twitter, you know, five or six or even eight years ago, if not even earlier than that. And uh, to me, I, I'm beginning to see sort of the. Um, ideological mugging take place where, you know, things that had not affected me are now beginning to affect me um, that I'm also noticing have affected other people as well. But certainly after he says these things, he goes back to Martin Luther King, um, you know, famous plagiarist like Claudine Gay and, and, and famous philanderer and communist, you know, where he, he talks about not being, being judged by the content of our character rather than the color of our skin. Um, very similar sort of conservative talking points that, you know, you and I have discussed um, when sort of looking at the Dark Enlightenment by Nick Land, that people use um, Martin Luther King Jr. as their sort of go to for what they see to be the race blind approach to the world. But as we you know can tell about things that are secular or have political ideology, you know, people are going to believe in something. People are going to be motivated by a political formula that motivates them to act a certain way that they do. And I think this is why looking at, you know, Claudine Gay's op-ed or seeing how the left has reacted to this, that, you know, it's the same thing we see in other parts of the Western world, especially in the Anglosphere, is, is that when there are inter-elite or inter-minority competitions inside of the progressive coalition, the knee-jerk reaction is to typically reassert and re-aim the, the cannon barrel back towards um, the white majority that tends to vote conservative or vote for Trump or whatever. And I think that this is what they're trying to do in the meantime. I mean, it's certainly what Dr. Uh, you know, Gay's uh, you know, op-ed in the New York Times is definitely oriented about. We've seen a lot of leftists go about it this way. Um, and at the same time, they're just trying to paint you know, uh, a man who believes in colorblind liberalism, Chris Rufo, you know, is this like Machiavellian evil right winger who is just like the next Herman Goring or something when he's just openly saying, I'm, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And trying to frame himself as sort of a conservative, you know, Alinsky type. And we're, we're trying to see how much of that actually works. And, and right now, He's gotten a very symbolic victory. The question becomes, um, will he seize that momentum and start aiming it at actual damage to these institutions, like their endowments, like their personnel, like their hiring practices? Or instead, are we going to be witnessing, as you had pointed out, very much from the sidelines, because the right has no power. Uh, are we going to be living in a world where we're, we're, we're seeing sort of the reemergence of neoconservatism? and trying to co-opt more, say, radical conservative elements with people like Bill Ackman, who remind me very much of Dave Rubin, where, you know, his his long essay post here on, on Twitter was sort of this sort of the left-left-me type deal. Now, that's, you know, that, that's happened before with a lot of people, but at the same time, we've also, you know, he's, got, he's made it personal, right, because someone went after his wife. And, I mean, a, a man should always defend himself and his wife's honor when it comes to these sort of things, which is good. But... Again, we're, we're witnessing from the sidelines, I think, a 
sort of reemergent neoconservatism as we had saw 60 years ago in the midst of the civil rights movement. A, a new radical ideology was taking over from mainstream progressivism 60 years ago. And now we're seeing the same kind of left-wing interfighting between, say, as you call it, DEI progressivism versus the, the standard bearing line of um, you know, liberalism or leftism as we knew it maybe 20 years ago. And uh, this is where we're at today is, is that the Great Awakening from, you know, 10, 15 years ago is coming home to roost uh, back in the very institutions that birthed it. And now people are witnessing that they're being hoisted by their own political, rhetorical and pedagogical petards, and they're trying to respond to it. And uh, Rufo has given them sort of the energy and the avenue to respond in kind. Uh, the question just becomes what happens next. And for me, I just, I do not see this as the victory that many people are calling it on Twitter. Uh, to me, it's a, a very interesting reemergence of sort of uh, Norman Potterette style neoconservatism. Yeah, it, it is, I think, very frustrating and rightly so for people who watched the progressive movement back every aspect of this, watch the kind of DEI insurgency, the Great Awakening, into all of these different uh, institutions, watched a very vicious and and, and still something you know a, something that's consistently supported by corporate America and basically every American institution, which is the singling of whites out as the problem, as the issue, as you're allowed to say things, as as Ackman has now suddenly discovered about white people that you can't say about anyone else. That if you you know if you selected for employees the way that corporations do if you selected for uh you know admissions the way that uh, uh you know that harvard and other universities do if you you know gave these long speeches about the evils of any other race of any other uh you know uh, ethnic background the way that they do for people of european descent then this would be horrible right that this would be the end of your career this would be your absolute destruction legally morally publicly and every way you can imagine and a lot of people are understandably frustrated. It's like, why did this have to, why did this not matter until it attacked, you know, it was connected to attack on Israel? Why did this not matter until it was Jewish students or Jewish donors or Jewish alumni who were feeling the heat, you know, professors, those kind of things. Like, why, why is that what had to advance this ball? And I, I understand that. That makes perfect sense. And the fact, again, that this is part of this inter- uh, inter-leftist civil war and not really its own uh, kind of uh, force brought from the right to stop this kind of behavior says a lot, to be sure. But I think it does matter that those things are in conversation, right? I, I think that guys like you and me have seen this tune way too many times. And it's it's really easy to be extremely skeptical, and you should be. I think there's a healthy skepticism that comes with seeing this sudden discovery that the left has left me and, oh, you know, Blackman just learned that journalists are evil and will de destroy anyone who disagrees with them. And they just learned that the left will, will, you know, will turn on you at a dime if they think that uh, you're an oppressor, that they can somehow fit that narrative on you. And all of a sudden he's seen the light on certain issues. And I think everyone is right to be pushing back against this, who's pushing back against this. Uh, Peachy Keenan uh, on, on Twitter, pointed out that Ackman's still donating vast sums of money to very leftist organizations that preach exactly the kind of all ideology that he suddenly learned may be against him. And uh, so I think there, there's a very, very good uh, skepticism. You know, I've written multiple pieces on the neocon cycle, 
and how uh, you know conservatives seek these newly uh, converted leftists out and hand them power and hand them prestige because they are the closest thing to the regime and therefore they still have the smell of the regime on them they still have kind of the elevated uh, position of authority and status uh, conferred onto them by their proximity to high spaces in the regime they seek these people out they incorporate them in they make them leaders and all of a sudden they can't believe that they're fighting for the same thing that the left was fighting for 20 years ago so we've seen this cycle before. I think everyone involved should, you know, should be careful with handing leadership to any of these people or completely embracing this as an unqualified victory. However, like you said, that that is allowing these conversations, that is allowing a focus of certain uh, of certain attention on certain issues. And importantly, I think it also allows the training of some political battle. You know, you you don't have generals unless you have experienced colonels and you don't have experienced colonels unless you have experienced lieutenants and you're not going to win the whole thing in just one political battle and so even if this is not the coup de gras even if this is not the ultimate victory over harvard i think there is a value in learning how to fight these skirmishes before you need to go into a larger protected protracted political battle yeah, I'm really glad that you had brought up your your neocon cycle piece. It's probably one of your best ones out there to sort of explain how this works. And it does illustrate, I think, this desperate desire to be seen as uh, acceptable or wanted by, you know, maybe disaffected regime personnel or elites that, you know, the lesson that should be learned from out of all of that is, is that if you're on the right or if you're a conservative, if you're someone out there you're going to probably be alone lest you surrender whatever kind of sovereignty that you have. I mean, we saw this when sort of neoconservatism got popular 60 and 50 years ago was is that, you know, people that were disaffected over, say, like the civil rights regime or America's foreign policy in the Middle East, uh, the people that were initially, you know, interested in trying to change the course of America, the old right, had found themselves in this sort of new Buckleyite sort of conservatism where whatever the majority of the nation at the time, demographically speaking, had lost sovereignty and became dispossessed in the search for these allies and elites. Uh, conservatives are going to be alone in a lot of these issues unless you constantly cater to the needs of others. And when you do so, you lose out on any sort of political capital or interest to keep that coalition going. I mean, we, we, we've seen this so rapidly over the course of the last 20 years, especially, I mean, to a point where 20 years ago, you know, conservatives and Democrats would agree on what a marriage is. And now, you know, we see mainstream conservative outlets congratulate, um, you know, quote unquote, surrogacy or having children from couples like Dave Rubin and the like. And it does illustrate how fast you lose your own principles, your morals and your sovereignty over the political issues that you care about. Now, I do agree with you. Yes, this is an opportunity for people to get some political experience in terms of activism or in terms of, uh, you know, trying to conduct political asymmetrical warfare. Because, I mean, that is what we are. We, we don't have we don't have billions of dollars. We don't have the media. We don't have the state. You know, the, the difference between Dark Maga and Dark Brandon, for example, is, is that Dark Brandon has no problem throwing you in jail and arresting you, you know, without any really due process. Whereas, you know, Dark Maga can be some really cool... Uh, edits on twitter.com that's just the way that things go right now the real thing i think that will going forward from this is that you know can this experience be used for causes that either disrupt the neoconservative cycle or at the very least can help destabilize other institutions 
Um, because again, this is nothing more than a pinprick. You know, Claudine Gay going down is like toppling uh, one statue, but a million other statues still exist, and you haven't taken or defenestrated anybody from like you know the 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 Congress or whatever. And to me, that's a really big deal to look at in this situation. Is is that uh, can this experience be utilized elsewhere? I think the idea of using plagiarism to expose problems like the competency crisis, the replication crisis, and just how much of our money, tax dollars, is wasted on these institutions, on these ridiculous grants and money and classes, is a good thing. I mean, it would take maybe five guys with weaponized autism and large language learning models to start going through every major publication that has been published in science or any other journal and recognize that most of the most prestigious scientists, social scientists, et cetera, that we use as talking heads for the next COVID, the, the next political issue, the same people that had studies saying, you know, actually protesting for Black Lives Matter reduced your transmission of COVID. You know, exposing these people as plagiarists and fraud is a very good avenue of attack that they should pursue. The real thing that I think that needs to be looked at is, can that momentum be seized? Because if not, you're going to see this kind of feuding between people like Chris Rupo and Curtis Yarvin happen ad infinitum and ad nauseum until, again, whatever momentum was there has been fizzled and dried up like a puddle in a you know baking vat of asphalt at 105 degrees. It, it won't go anywhere. Yeah, I think that the, the ability to discredit is really key and of course this is this is the big debate right this is the big debate between someone like yarvin and rufo rufo believes that you can be a right-wing alinskyite right you can use these tactics you can hold these institutions accountable to their own standards you can freeze the target you can and and you, you can do everything that alinsky uh said but you can do it from the right yarvin does not think that that's the case and i think there's there there's a little more nuance here right i think rufo's tactic works when it comes to disassembly, right? When you need, when, when you, because that's what those tactics are for. They are for destroying established causes. They are for dismantling uh, the kind of institutions, the kind of standards, the kind of mythos that currently surrounds places like Harvard. Harvard isn't just some random place. It, it's one of, it, it's up there with the New York Times as critical organs of our uh, kind of distributed uh, theocratic oligarchy. Right. That this is where the ideology is created. And the fact that there was already a in like kind of internecine warfare occurring inside that institution kind of shows you some difficulty. I mean, we don't have to like this, but it's true. Almost all major powers are kind of destroyed from within, right? They're destroyed by themselves. And so we're probably not going to, in and of ourselves, get rid of the credibility of Harvard. However, the fact that these two factions are willing to go to war and they're willing to tear each other apart by also dismantling each other's credibility and throwing the kind of credibility of the institution into the fire is important. And if we can aid or accelerate certain parts of that, then that's useful. But like you said, you have to be willing to, you have to know what's happening there, what role is being played, right? Rufo, like I said, did, he did not uh, secure this victory on his own. Like this victory exists because this conflict is already ongoing inside the left. And he can simply leverage that in, in a certain way. So can you build a lasting victory over what, through what Rufo is doing? I don't think you can. I think, I, I think that that is uh, like, especially as you pointed out 
when Gay is just going back to a 900k salary, right? The, this is not somebody who's out on the street. You know, when when conservatives are canceled, when conservatives lose their job, when conservatives uh, enter into a battle of this magnitude and they lose, they're, they're devastated. They're toast, right? They're not going to be able to make a living. They're not going to get hired anywhere. Uh, it, the victory is total and complete and destructive. For Gay, this is just a minor setback. She'll probably be, uh, you know, in some other leadership position in a few years once people aren't looking anymore, once people aren't, aren't focused, or once this story is no longer the key thing that leftists are feuding over inside their organization. But in, th in the meantime, if you can get them to kind of uh, shred their credibility, that's very valuable. We saw, you know, once uh, Chris Rufo won this, uh, places like the EAP talking about the, the horrible history of scalping and how white colonialists use scalping as, <laughs> as, as a major tactic. And so, so Rufo is just uh, adopting the white colonialist uh, tactic of scalping. Uh, that, that, that's the, so when you have those kinds of ridiculous meltdowns, I think there is some value in, in these organizations knowing they can bleed and being willing to rip each other apart over this. But I do think that Yarvin's critique of you know the fact that this is this is only a uh, kind of a, a semi victory uh in in his piece he says specifically it's not that this is a bad scene thing itself it's it's you know it's getting high over a win like this it's treating a small victory like this as if it's a complete uh toppling of the system because it most certainly is not that the left is still in charge of these institutions these institutions still rule the roost uh, and conservatives, they're they're not going to be putting Chris Rufo in as the you know, president or anything. They're just going to replace Claudine Gay with a slightly more doctrinaire leftist, probably one from the winning faction of the Civil War, and then they're going to move on. No conservative will be sitting in any positions of power after this. Yeah, and it looks like they've already done that with whoever the with the Dr. Barber, the the currently acting uh, president of Harvard. It certainly looks like that as it is. And yeah, that, that's the big critique is, is that, you know, a victory, either you're engaging in some kind of total war scenario where like your objective is to wear the enemy down, to destroy their institutions and to do it. Uh, the difference is, of course, between, say, like the asymmetrical warfare that we're witnessing versus, say, like, a, a you know, a, a parody type event is, is that there is a huge disparity in power. Uh, Rufo or any sort of moderate race blind, let's go back to just how things were prior to the Great Awakening, uh, they are vastly outnumbered, outfunded, outgunned. Now, I mean, it's, you know, good to have someone like Bill Ackman or the Pershing Fund in your in your back pocket to help keep this attack going. The difference can be is, is that even if you were to go back to sort of that system, uh, the legal American infrastructure has already adopted for it. We've seen the radical expansion of disparate impact doctrine. We we still have, you know, the, the cases with regarding Bostwick. We've seen this with regarding, um, you know, uh, race as well as gender identity being part of sort of the greater civil rights regime. And, you know, if you're still citing Martin Luther King Jr. and you're still citing like the idea of that we can have things just based on the content of our character, not, you know, race or anything like that you're still going to be called a racist and you're still going to be sued uh, under these, um, you know, under this sort of grand jurisprudential infrastructure, right? I mean, this is the question about pressuring, you know, to examine what, what, what is the, what's the root cause of this, right? And like, we, we've both seen the meme from the good old boys that you can have a 5,000 point plan to destroy wokeness, but uh, unless you're willing to destroy, you know, disparate impact and the very blatant 
degree of anarcho-tyranny when it comes to race in this country, which comes really from the sort of civil rights regime, good luck even trying to go back to the 1990s or to a pre-woke era when it comes to being race-blind in our selections or, or meritocracy, because you know, we also don't have the demographics of 20 to 30 years ago. We don't have the, the judges or the political ideologies of 30 years ago. And at very best, you're witnessing a very late rear guard action against something that has already taken over the institutions 60 to 70 years ago. I mean, this is what Helen Andrews over the American conservative talks about. You know, it's not really so much ideology as it is that we have totally replaced the pedagogy, demographics, and funding mechanisms of what these old institutions used to be. And that was half a century ago, if not more. So we're, we're in a position now where, yeah, you can get a pinprick out, but you know that $900,000 salary isn't being seized that's going to, say, you know, Chris Rufo's projects in Florida. But also, this symbolic victory isn't giving any examples for what you could do at a local level. A good example of what's being done at the local level would be Oklahoma's Governor Stitt basically banning from the state university system any sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion office. And that could go further as well, considering what powers the governor actually has. Um, and that, that's a big deal here. And the debate at the end of the day is going to be between sort of the disaffected, the left-left-me types who want to reform the institutions, and then those who are far more on the right that recognize these institutions need to be raised to the ground. Because if you, it, it's like the age old story about revenge, right? Like, oh, we spare the son. Well, now the son is going to spend the rest of his like young adult life training to get revenge on his father. And if we, you know, oh, we take down Harvard. Okay, great. That means MIT or someone else who survived the this Harvard attack is now going to train to, to make sure that Rufo is taken out or that Bill Ackman is, is you know, defenestrated publicly or something like that. And I think that that's a really important thing to consider here is, is that on international relations, for example, to sort of provide an allegory to this, you have what are called hegemonic states versus revisionist states. Hegemonic states like the status quo. They want to keep it as is. Revisionist states want to usurp power, change the international paradigm and do it how it is. So the United States is a hegemonic power versus like China, which can be seen as a revisionist state. Um, you know, the question is, is like, well, are you a revisionist or do you want to like keep the hegemon as it is with some slight changes and reform to maintain power? And until, you know, these guys determine what they are, reformers, you know, revisionists, or they want to just keep the status quo with some slight tweaks, um, you know, these kind of things are going to keep happening. And again, these are just byproducts of so many other issues in America, whether it be unfettered immigration, the complete control of ideology in the country, which is leaning towards the left, the complete demographic replacement of what used to be America's elites. Um, until those things get addressed, you know, these Harvard problems are going to continue. And the old sort of neoconservative establishment is going to try and restart that cycle the next time they feel that their group is being attacked. And unfortunately, you've said it yourself, the woke isn't being put away anytime soon. So we're going to see more flashpoints like this happen as other universities try and react to the fact that, you know, wokeism, this DEI progressivism, this oppressor versus oppressed narrative, you know, if they, as long as they keep including Israel and the Jewish state, a part of that, then we're going to see more Harvard flashpoints happen. The question just becomes, we're going to just see more free speech be clamped down. We're going to see universities try and carve out a special exception, but that's not going to stop the interminority fights on the left coalition 
from doing what they usually do, which is reorienting their rifles and cannons back to the majority population, which is predominantly white flyover America that has already been systematically excluded from elite institutions, the media, government, press for decades. And th th that's where I think that the when the dust settles, we might see that very much likely be the case. I think that there is a very real uh, fault line, like you said, kind of between those that understand that what is necessary is the disillusion of these uh, institutions and not simply their reform. And those who think that they simply need to make a few tweaks, right? That, that that's going to be the, the huge dividing line. The reason I'm a little hopeful about this particular scenario is that um, whether Ackman, I don't think for a moment, I don't believe for a minute, the guys like Ackman would actually want to get rid of academia. His wife is an academic, right? They, they, they support this institution in theory, but the, with the the fervor that they feel to stop what they think is like a, a loss of power inside the leftist coalition, the, the response that they have is actually picking away at the very fabric or the very core of the institution. If you can prove, if you can show that there's a huge plagiarism crisis inside academia, if you can discredit this if you can have academics sniping at each other different parts of the left going after each other's academic work this is this is basically like getting two factions of a religious group to go to war over what their book their religious book says right like that, that you're, you're creating a scenario where the coalition cannot really be held together the institutions that are central to the coalition and to the perpetuation of its message and the projection of its narrative power can't really survive if they're kind of directly firing at the ground under which they stand. Now it's entirely possible that this blows over that they re you know, they, they redirect this energy, like you said, and, and it doesn't go this direction, but there is a possibility that in their fervor to kind of fight for superiority inside of these institutions, the different factions of the left, left actually just hollow out the ground they're standing under which is kind of the infallibility of these institutions. Harvard isn't, uh, as we both know, Harvard isn't actually about an education. Harvard is about a status symbol. Harvard is, Harvard is about connections. Harvard is about getting the rubber, rubber stamp of the ruling class and saying, you're one of us. You can be one of us too, right? While they've been doing this, they went after, for instance, what part of their meltdown was going after Chris Rufo's Harvard degree because apparently it was part of the Harvard Extension uh, 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 branch. And that's just one of the degree mills that many of these higher institutions run so they can pad their pocketbooks. And so you have a bunch of Harvard professors or Harvard alumni going on about how unprestigious Harvard degrees actually are, explaining that really, basically, like half the degrees we hand out are meaningless and, and that you shouldn't even rank these people among our standing. That's the kind of stuff that wounds the credibility of an institution when you have the people who are supposed to be your priests actually saying, well, really half of this stuff doesn't matter. And we just do it for profit. And you should completely, you know, uh, not look at Rufo with any kind of uh, validity because he happens to have his degree from this section of Harvard and not the right section of Harvard. Again, attacking the, the, the academic credibility, attacking the plagiarism, uh, attacking those places as degree mills, you, you suddenly realize that these places are kind of eating themselves alive so that these factions can figure out who's going to rule over the ashes. 
And I think that is the most interesting development that comes out of this. It's not even really, you know, gays uh, 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 stepping down. It's not really the displacement of any particular elite. It's the willingness of these two sides to just cut at the core and then the foundation about what makes these institutions important and what kind of mystifies the public about these. I mean, don't get me wrong. They'll still have power after this is done. Harvard can completely abolish the foundation of its kind of spiritual uh, power and still wield power for a while. But once you're running on kind of pure authority, once you're kind of running on, you, you don't have any of the founding myth anymore. You don't have any of the political formula. You're just standing on kind of the fact that, well, rich people pay us to get in here so that some at some point they can get paid more money and be part of the ruling elite. You can only have that for so long. When, when you no longer have that noble lie standing under institutions like Harvard, eventually they fall down. And I think that's kind of where, where the real victory is, even if that isn't what maybe you know Rufo is celebrating or what, what other parts of uh, kind of this uh, current victorious coalition of neoconservatism are celebrating about this particular win. I think that could be an effect. You know, I, I'm I'm reminded of that clip with like Jim Carrey. I think it's in Dumber Dumber, where you're like, "Are you serious?" So you're saying there's still a chance, you know? And <laughs> uh, not, I mean, there's a there is a chance. I don't mean to be a complete, you know, Debbie Downer for this entire uh, episode here, Oren. But to me, I, I, what I, sure, you can totally destroy the 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 credibility. And I mean, I feel like the last several years have done a great job at destroying that credibility, increasing polarization, divisiveness, and the decrease in public trust in institutions, both on the left and the right. But as you and I both know, politics is about rewarding friends and punishing enemies. It does not matter that right-wingers or conservatives or even disaffected liberals look at Harvard and they're like, whoa, I don't want to, you know, go take my son there anymore, especially if I'm uh, you know, if I if I'm Jewish or if I'm white, I wouldn't definitely want to take my kid to Harvard. It seems like a very hostile place for my kid to get an education. They'll come out hating me. Like that's a terrible idea. The problem is, is that for aspirational foreign students or people who just got off the boat or people whose parents want to send them off to be the next sort of like Joaquin Castro type. Yeah, I'm definitely going to send my son to Harvard. I definitely want him to be connected with other progressive elites that are going to radically transform the country like Barack Obama promised and did as he was as president. Those are the things that I think are important for us to consider here is, is that, listen, unless you radically gatekeep and tell these people, no, we're not going to bring progressives in anymore, or we're going to do this, um, you know, it's again, the cycle continues. And it's the same thing that we've seen from what Rufo has written about. This goes back to what Yarvin was critiquing him about. You know, if you're going to use the last generation's batch of leftists to attack the newest institution, um, you know, you're, you're just a, a different type of, you know, Leninist trying to, you know, come, you know, come up with some sort of plan to take over the institution or to do so. And to me, that is a, an, an issue that needs to be addressed here is, is that, yeah, the, the interscene fighting can happen. This little civil war can take place. The big question at the end of the day, and you already had said it yourself, is that they're still going to have power. How much power they have, I don't know. Um, but they're still going to have enough where people will want to take their kids to Harvard if they are aspirational progressives that want to run for Congress, be attorneys, run a non-governmental organization that facilitates uh, social change and the like. I'm just not seeing the the potential for a win in the way that we're going to do so. I mean, like, not to not to throw your tweets back at you, right? But like the the tanks on Harvard Yard thing would be a really great, you know, not literally, although one can dream. 
uh, you want to find a way where they don't have the financial capability to fund the racket that they've been a part of for the last 70 years. And until we're in a position that they are defunded, all that we're going to do, like we said at the beginning of this episode, is look from the sidelines and throw stones at whoever we don't like the most. And I'm okay throwing stones. I don't live in a glass house. They do. Um, but the problem is they don't mind living in a glass house that's full of cracks or holes because at the end of the day, they can just hire or import 50 million more people to go fix the glass, and we can't. And that power asymmetry is the big deal here. How do we learn to fight a political, a cold political asymmetric conflict? And right now, I, I, I'm not seeing that being waged on a level that would be beneficial to us. And if not, all that we're going to do, as I said earlier, is the reemergence of, of neoconservatism, the, the Norman Potterite style, you know, disaffectation and dissatisfaction with the current civil rights regime that now includes wokeness, disparate impact, all this, you know, uh, you know, a lot of progressives you choose as white, like we're, we're going to see a repeat of what we did in the 1960s. And there are four things that allowed this to happen. As we mentioned at the beginning, the October 7th attack, the entire progressive machine evolving to incorporate these people as white, um, Chris Rufo seizing that momentum and working with other disaffected wealthy donors to do this. And then to some extent, Dr. Claudine Gay being black. Uh, those are the four main things that really did allow this to be the perfect sort of, um, you know, boiling pot for this event to take place. The question becomes, will the momentum be seized that actually moves it to destroy the legitimacy, not just in the eyes of the right, but the left? Um, and can we utilize the plagiarism accusations to destroy more of academia? And until then, um, I think we're going to keep having this debate for the next several months. Yeah, I think that, again, all of the skepticism is well placed. But the real question, you know, is when you don't have power, as you pointed out, when you're not going to have these particular roles, what does a victory look like, right? And I think there, uh, there is a really valuable point in understanding that this is a small victory, but, but immediately pushing for more. I mean, this is what the left does in everything, right? They're yeah. never happy with a victory. They no. get somebody fired. They don't care. They want the institution gone next, right? They want they want everything connected to it destroyed. Like they they never sit on their laurels and say, okay, well, this is I am now you know dominating this thing. No, it's the next. It's the next. It's the next step. Constantly secure the next hill. This win, you know, if if we go back to the the kind of the the Yarvin stance, is this a win that creates more power? And I think in this case, the answer is no, it doesn't, right? Because Claudine Gay getting fired doesn't get one more victory for the right in and of itself. And, and I want to be clear. I want this to go somewhere. I, I right, want right, this right. to be a victory. And I do agree with where you're coming from that, you know, that there is something to be learned from this. There is stuff that is beneficial for us to understand because you're, we, we, we both agree. And we both have said it more than once so far that we don't have power. So we have to watch from the sidelines or we have to watch with a side that is doing something that is nominally in our favor the question becomes, you know, if you form a coalition or if you do any of these things, how can you ensure that your interests get a seat at the table? And I think that is a big thing going forward here. I mean, like the last several years have been a very impressive 
you know, opening of the Overton window, whether it's Vivek Ramaswamy talking about the great replacement along with Ben Braddock interviewing him with IM 1776 or the, you know, even Rufo when being pushed by Tucker Carlson about it, saying that like DEI and this other stuff is blatantly anti-white. Those are good things. The question becomes, can those things that are being discussed by these individuals also be incorporated towards this? And I think that there's opportunity to do it I'm I'm skeptical that that will take place, but there are things to to, to learn from this because, as you had said, and as Yarvin had critiqued, you know, the left is never satisfied with one scalp, which white people didn't invent, Indians did. <laughs> we just took it from them um, and made it better. Uh, the problem is, is that you know, are we going to just look? Are we going to rest on our laurels like we do every time there's an election? Like, is this going to just be a political release valve? Where we're like, yay, we won. And then we ignore things like the deep state or we ignore the border. or We ignore billions of dollars being wasted in Ukraine, getting hundreds of thousands of people killed. I certainly hope not. And I do want, you know, and I, I know Rufo follows us both, but I, I certainly pray that, you know, in this opportunity of organizing, fundraising and attacking that, you know, it's not just Harvard. Look towards the states. I mean, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, he had done a lot. Uh, inside his own state, whether it was about, you know, trying to keep sex ed away from like, you know, grooming teachers away from kids. Why not, you know, ban DEI or like, you know, lesbian it was, that, studies. That is a, that is in Florida. That is. Yeah, it is in Florida. Yeah. I mean, like just work with Governor DeSantis, do these things. I mean, Greg Abbott from in Texas could learn from Ron DeSantis, could learn from Governor Stitt in Oklahoma. You're in charge of the state institutions for education. Take that money. But we also need to be doing more on our side, I think, to provide competency and to provide um avenues for you know people who want an education that doesn't just mean you got went to a degree mill to go work for an ngo i mean hillsdale college is one of the best institutions in america because it still does the classics and it doesn't have obvious academic jokes like claudine gay um working there or teaching there or being students of that institution so i mean if we were to just cut all of this woke fat off of the decrepit husk of America's academic institutions, that'd be a huge step in the right direction. And I and I hope that Rufo looks at this victory or look at what he's done and looks towards the state level. Because if you could turn Oklahoma or Florida or Texas or you know any major institution in America, like you know the University of Chicago, and said no more of this DEI stuff, no more of this progressive nonsense that's anti-white, that's anti-Jewish, or whatever. And, you know, this is how we're actually going to do things with much more rigorous standards, you know, whether using LLMs to check for plagiarism, et cetera, that would be a huge step, I think. And there is avenue where, again, opportunities like this, just like how the left uses arguments to create room for power, we can use this to create room for institution building, capital investment and allocation. And like you had said, training those, those captains, those lieutenants, those colonels, those generals to lead effectively against the thing. The question just becomes, is this just for reform or are we going to, to raise these institutions and make our own from the ground up? And there's room to do both, I think, but it requires some organization and, and planning and strategic discussion. But I'm on the sidelines. I'm just a frog on the Internet. And it's uh, really all I can say at that point. Well, I think it's the raising of the alternatives. That's the key. And, you know, Yarvin yeah. makes that point. Actually, I, I wanted to grab Flak Jacket's uh, comment here because it was very good. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, the, comment, actual, okay. the commenter. No, we're not okay. under fire yet. Uh, uh, Flack Jacket says 
real victory doesn't look like Harvard dying. Uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll, dis we'll, we'll disagree about that. But he says, real victory looks like the masses looking to us as a replacement. And that's exactly right. That's why it's too soon. We aren't ready. And I think yes. that's a good insight. I think that's a very good insight. I 100% I, I agree with it. And I mean, this isn't just... I, I think it was... Um... Uh, Huntsman on Twitter, uh, Human Map Intel. He he works in logistics, and he says, you know, the most critically important demographic to look at right now are a bunch of like mechanically well trained, competent, like fifty year old white guys that are just like shaking their head, thinking like, oh god, this is my replacement. These are the people I have to train who are morons. Um, you want that because I mean, whether it's airline doors falling off, forty uh, percent of America's bridges needing to be repaired, or that most of college institutions have a doctor, you know, Claudine Gay of their own, you want to be competent. And that means not just in education, but in, in business and in training young people and making sure those vocational skills happen. I don't mean just blue collar tradesman stuff. We have, a you know, that's a good thing to have as well. But I also mean like airline pilots, things like this. I mean, a, even if we did get a return to like meritocratic race blind liberalism, as we saw when California banned affirmative action, you know, um, you know, white enrollment went up and uh, African and American and Hispanic enrollment went down. And that Palladium magazine article about the competency crisis is, is that, listen, you know, diversity does kill. And we have to ensure that if people want to look at us as the, you know, as the replacement to these jokes of institutions, we need to be recruiting getting the most competent people on board. And this is a point that's been echoed by Rufo, echoed by Jeremy Carl at the Claremont Institute, and has been echoed by anyone who sees the writing on the wall that America's infrastructure, education, and to a large extent, also its military, is falling apart. And we can see it right before our eyes. And we're just openly reporting about it. I mean, you know, when, when even the military is just like the people who help build our Minuteman 3 nuclear missiles are, you know, most important strategic nuclear deterrent um, we don't have the men that can remake them or rebuild them or to function them, to upgrade them for 2023 technology, 2024 technology. That's a huge problem. And so if we want to talk about regime change or competency, we need people that actually know what they're doing and not talking out of their ass or talking out of, you know, someone else's mouth with plagiarism. So that is flat jackets point is absolutely right. I agree. The, the uh, arc of history is long, but it bends towards Warhammer 40k. Where, where we don't know, we have just, to summon the, the just machine pick a side. Spirit. Just pick a yeah. side, you know. <laughs> summon the machine spirits so that you can defend yourself uh, in in the nuclear apocalypse. All right, so we're gonna head over to our uh, our questions from the people. But before we do, Prudentialist, where should everyone find your great work? Well, wonderful. Well, you can find me on YouTube as the Prudentialist. I'm very close to cracking 11K on the subscriber count. So uh, by all means, subscribe if you like what you've heard so far and what you do. Um, I'm also going to be spending a considerable more time on Substack as well. So the Prudentialist.substack.com. You can find me there on Twitter, Telegram, Rumble, Odyssey, Libsyn, all other podcast platforms. And as always, Oren, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And guys, of course, make sure you're following the Prudentialist and all of his work. Uh, make sure also that if this is your first time on the channel, you'll go ahead and subscribe and make sure you're hitting the notifications, guys. I'm getting a lot of people saying, hey, you did streams like three months ago that I didn't even know happened because they're just not showing up with the notifications. You got to hit that bell. You got to turn on the notifications, all that stuff. YouTube just is like, oh, yeah, you're following someone. Sure, you're subscribed to someone. Doesn't mean you want to see their content, right? You know, you know how it works, especially with the right wing channel. So make sure that you go ahead and turn that on. And of course, if we want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, listen in while you're working out, you know, when you're when you're out uh, mowing the lawn, something like that. 
You can go ahead and subscribe to the Orin McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. Leave that rating and review when you do to make sure that everybody can see the show. All right. So Michael Robertson here for $5. He says, I'm just here for the frog of the week. Uh, well, here's your still, frog, good sir. Yes. <laughs> you are the frog today. Uh, yes. Let's see. Uh, Creeper Weirdo says, how long until earnest Jews realize that in order to be themselves, they have to become right wing. Also rare Dave W. Um, well, I don't know what that transition is going to look like, or if we're going to see another, again, another neocon cycle, if we would see people actually learn a lesson. I think, so I think the, I think the key is always whoever it is, is coming over to the right. The thing you always want to look for is, do they have a real understanding that they were wrong? Because what happens so often when people make this neocon transition from the left to the right is they say, oh, I have all the same principles. It's the left that's changed. And what they're saying is, I didn't do anything wrong. I was right the whole time and I'm still right. And there's no lesson to learn. I just, you know, the, the team shifted under me. And so I'm just changing my affiliation. I'm not actually changing any principles. That's a problem. That means that person has not learned anything. That means that they they just think that they were right the whole time and they are going to continue to be right and they should have leadership positions and power and everything else that goes along with their status. They should just have it in a different party or on a different side of the political aisle. The people that really change are the ones that come to you and say, I was wrong. I was wrong about these things ideologically. I was wrong about these things uh, morally. I now understand the the way that these things connect. That's the real thing, right? The the way that these different uh, moral principles, these moral visions connect to what I saw becoming a problem inside this movement. And I have changed, you know, because of this. That's really the kind of conversion that you're looking for before you kind of understand that someone's actually uh, kind of changed what they're doing and have really made their way over to, say, the conservative or the rightward sphere. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're they they have that natural sense of in-group preference, which I think makes a lot of people right-wing just by nature. Uh, I don't know about the rare Dave W. I, I don't know what that's in reference to. I'm not to. sure where that's connected <laughs> to either there. Maybe it's conversation with King Crocoduck. I have no idea. But I mean, the, like you had said, or you want someone who has some genuine contrition uh, when they when they convert. Because I mean, if not, you know, I we already have a million Dave Rubens that are allegedly on the right. I You don't need another one. And um, uh, until I guess they recognize that maybe my interests and, and their interests are actually more common than they think. And they're going to give maybe some breathing room to, you know, that political interest of mine, maybe, but until then only time will tell. Bogo here says Harvard, not going back to its Puritan roots. Forget about the, I, I think that's pretty safe. I, I said this on, I said this on Twitter. Um, and, and I think I said in an interview at some point as well. Uh, I don't want to control Harvard. I mean, that would be nice. Don't get me wrong. Like, but that's not the ultimate goal. My goal is that no one cares what Harvard thinks anymore. That that's really what what matters. Uh, you you are not going to see the right retaking Harvard anytime soon. I said that in the in the Castle piece. So it's it's the discrediting of the institutional framework that undergirds the current regime that matters. And so, to the extent that Harvard can make itself a joke, to the extent where People can view Harvard as kind of the 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 you know degree mill that it is the the uh, the prestige stamp that it is, and not an institution that actually wields any real 
uh, prowess when it comes to education or those kind of things, that those are victories. I, I don't think we're going to see, uh, you know, I don't think they're, they're going to be putting any kind of, you know, Ted Cruz isn't going to be running Harvard anytime soon. And so uh, I don't think you should see that as the kind of term of victory. Instead, it's really that uh, that Harvard just no longer matters in the long run. That's that's kind of when you'll know you've won. Yeah, when, pretty- when, it, when, it, when, it, when it's treated like an adult continuing education class or a right. GED mill, then that's that that would be a good victory. Or, yes. you know, like it's just a historical site. You know, saying like this was once Harvard, a place where like Puritan clergymen were trained or something like yeah, that. Yeah. That, that would be fine. You know, treat it like a memorial. But uh, until then, I would love to see it raised to the ground like the left has raised the William Penn statue, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the Reconciliation Memorial in Arlington. But until then, you know, a victory will is yet to be achieved. If you go to Oxford, you know, the central chapel there, they, technically there's still services every once in a while, but for the most part, it's just a bunch of university students walking people around and being like, can you believe that people used to like worship here in the middle of, of Oxford? And when people do that for Harvard, like at some point they just walk you through Harvard and you're like, can you believe that people used to talk about progressivism and these people actually ruled, you know, the world at some point in this institution? But now we just kind of look at it as quaint. That that's when you know you you've won. It's just a there's a tour going through talking about how this used to be a hall of power, but now it's just a symbolic, uh, you know, historical building sitting somewhere uh, off uh, in the northeast. Uh, Creeper Weirdo says a pessimism from the from the jaws of optimism. Hey, frog man. Uh, like I said, I appreciate uh, 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 Prudential's coming on today and letting me play the the optimist. That was very kind of him. I don't do it often, but, you know, it's funny because I I usually say on your show when the left does something crazy, I usually say I'm not surprised. And this is one of those times where I'm kind of surprised to see some uh, optimism on the right. You know, Uh, I recall a very famous bald man saying optimism is cowardice. So here we are. Here we are dripping with optimism. These guys. (laughs) Yep. All right. Uh, Gabe Underground says there's no real difference between Rufo and uh, and the James Lindy types in the terms of their beliefs. But I'll have to concede that catering to the back to fresh prince type uh, like Ackerman is our is it our form of patronage network, sadly. Uh, yeah, there there is a little bit of uh, take your W's where you can get them here, uh, right? It, it, you wish that that was not the case. Uh, but if this is if this is a way that you can drive a wedge, if this is the way that you can kind of wound uh, what look like the uh, impenetrable walls of your enemy and their power. Uh, then you kind of kind of take the the W there. I do think that Rufo and James Lindsay are different. I think that they they both have a core of classical liberalism, if that's what you mean. Um, but but I do think Rufo is looking for solutions and is willing to engage in solutions that James Lindsay simply is not. Because I think that while uh, Rufo is probably too wed to certain parts of the kind of classical liberal orthodoxy, he is I think still uh, right wing. In, in a way he has the right wing and smell as Dave, the distributist likes to say um, in, in a way that, that Lindsay is not, maybe he is not the terrifying fire breather in that, that some of the uh, you know liberal press would like to make him out to be. Uh, but, but I don't, I don't think that he and James Lindsay are the same animal, uh, but that's just, yeah, I mean, I wish Chris Rufo had the the right wing like nastiness that like the, the establishment press said that he does. But, you know, uh, Chris Rufo is willing to talk to people like me or to Oren, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas James Lindsay is on this like dead horse that says classical liberalism has never been tried. 
So, I mean, one guy is a well-known new atheist gay activist. The other one at least wants to take out progressive Harvard. So I know which guy I like more than the other. That's right. And, and Rufo, again, we, we've, we've talked a lot here, but I want to say he is the most effective conservative political activist out there. You might say, well, that's sad because there should be more effective activists. Okay, sure. But he still is. And so you should really understand, uh, you know, when you have somebody who's racking up a lot more W's than you've seen in a long time, there should be something you're paying attention to. But that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. That doesn't mean you have to say that this is enough or this is sufficient. Uh, but you should still be noticing there's a reason this guy's winning when other people aren't. So, so don't, when, when, when you're in this kind of situation, you can't sit around and uh, and just bag on every single possible uh, route to victory. That I think I think that's one thing that Rufo is right on that that uh, Yarvin is not that you know that 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 uh, constant push towards. Uh, we can't possibly win anything is, is self-defeating in a big way. Uh, Creeper Weirdo says, last one, I'm glad uh, I'm glad that more people have a reason to ask questions. Uh, no, not that one. People might think outside <laughs> of the woke now. Yeah, and that's really what I'm saying is, yes, I understand that a lot of this discussion did not start from the place that many people on the right would wish it had, uh, that, you know, there there are certain uh, political realities that people wish didn't have you didn't have to play inside of, I suppose. But at the end of the day, the fact that these conversations are happening, that these institutions are facing the kind of scrutiny that they are, uh, that this warfare is damaging the credibility of the, and, and foundations of some of these institutions is good. I, I'm not the person who's, oh, all of this will inevitably uh, mean that, you know, the, the, the conservative backlash is coming. Like, I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm certainly not delusional that the, those things are inevitable. Uh, but again, you got to get a notch those W's where you can. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, right, like the, the fight is going to be between, as you mentioned, the old left or old classical liberalism versus this. And uh, if you're on the right and, you know, you don't trust them or whatever, I mean, this is what is the right done on the line for the last like eight years that was successful? It was pushing these people for the right word. And that is what needs to happen until, you know, you are tried as a heretic to the right wing orthodoxy. Last, last one, the distributors said religious Jews would eventually move right. Well, I mean, that's certainly true for some, uh, not as many as one would hope, and perhaps this event will increase that number. Unfortunately, religious Jews aren't actually the ones that wield the most power in many of these situations inside that coalition in many ways. Uh, but, it, but you know, obviously, if they learn that lesson, then they realize that, hey, uh, you know, importing a lot of people who think of me as oppressor and want to destroy me is probably a terrible way to run a country and making sure that they're more prevalent in all of these institutions and, you know, aiming that kind of rhetoric at whites and, and people of European descent is also immoral, then great. That's a fantastic lesson for people to learn. And I certainly hope that that's one uh, that, that people gather from all of this. All right, guys, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. But once again, thank you to the Prudentialist for coming on. Always a pleasure to have him. Please make sure that you subscribe to the channel, guys. Thank you for joining. And as always, I will talk to you next time.